What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, we bring you our top stories. The largest U.S. teachers union released its recommended summer reading list for teachers. One controversial selection has raised some eyebrows. The Biden administration wants to sell leases of federal land for conservation. We bring you why some Republicans strongly oppose the idea, even saying it would be illegal to do so. The federal government can no longer pressure social media companies to remove posts. What are the full implications of this and what's next in the case? The Supreme Court has ruled unanimously on trademark law and how it applies to trademarks outside the U.S. It's a decision that could narrow trademark protections. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is a cultural controversy that's gaining attention. The largest teachers union is recommending that teachers put a controversial book on their summer reading lists. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the National Education Association's literary selection and reactions to it. The book Gender Queer was listed on the teacher union's Great Summer Reads for Educators in the banned books section. The book was written by Maya Kobabe. Many American parents say it has no place in schools. The problem for them are its explicit drawings and descriptions of sexual acts. Kobabe says the book focuses specifically on her memories that have to do with gender identity, sexuality, and then coming out to family, friends, and her community. She took issue with parents trying to keep it out of school libraries, speaking on MLive. I think that an attack on libraries, an attack on free speech, is an attack on every single American citizen. Presidential candidate Ron DeSantis addressed the controversy of what he called pornographic books getting into schools last month. Here he responds to a heckler who called him a fascist over the issue. We're not going to let you impose an agenda on our kids. We're going to stand up for our kids. We're going to make sure to do it right. That's what we're going to do. The teachers' union showcased 11 books in total. Another selection was White Fragility, which the union says is for white people who don't know how to talk about Juneteenth or how to address more fundamental but sometimes uncomfortable topics around race and racism. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Biden administration wants to start using some federal land for conservation instead of using it for oil and gas and more. However, the proposal is facing pushback. The period for public comment on the proposed rule is ending today. Here's more. Over a century ago, the U.S. started selling oil and grazing leases on public lands. Now, the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, wants to also sell federal land leases for conservation. Republicans are pushing back against the proposal, saying it violates the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, or FLPMA. The statute mandates that BLM open federal lands to various uses such as energy, mining, and others. Montana's attorney general told Fox News that federal land uses are all defined in FLPMA. Nowhere in there does the term conservation. Conservation is basically non-use, so what this would amount to is locking up swaths of federal land for conservation. That's not an approved use under the law. He also indicated that the federal government is ignoring the separation of powers, saying this rule should be implemented by the legislature, not the executive branch. Last month, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem testified on the proposal before a House committee. She said using America's land to produce everyday needs is critical, so the U.S. does not become dependent on hostile nations. We are going to be surrendering our freedom by becoming more dependent on them for our critical needs. 
for gas, oil, food, medicine, and more. The director of the BLM previously responded to such comments, saying conservation won't replace grazing, mining, or other practices, saying, it makes conservation an equal among the multiple uses that we manage for. The public comment period for the proposal is ending on Wednesday and reportedly received more than 170,000 comments. A judge handed down a historic ruling against the Biden administration. It blocks Biden officials and government agencies from working with big tech to censor social media users. We bring you some legal analysis on this and what's expected to happen next. Joining me now is Jenna Ellis, a constitutional attorney and former senior advisor and counsel to President Donald Trump. Thank you so much for your time today, Jenna. Thanks so much. This is a really incredible day for the First Amendment. If the judge's ruling does stick, what are the legal mechanisms that prevent these federal agencies from colluding with big tech to censor users? Well, this is exactly what uh, the Attorney General of Missouri, Andrew Bailey, is, is attempting in this case. And so this case, uh, in this case, the judge granted a preliminary injunction that basically requires the federal government to stop colluding with big tech in any way to censor Americans. And what he, uh, the judge is saying in this case is that it presents probably one of the most significant cases that shows how the government basically attempted to bypass the First Amendment and censor uh, American speech on a wide variety of issues that appear to be specifically targeted against conservatives using their relationships with big tech. So this preliminary injunction is huge. So you've established the one-sided nature to these actions here. And I want to point out the judge wrote that the attorneys general have produced evidence of a massive effort by defendants from the White House to federal agencies to suppress speech based on its content. Does this ruling carry any penalty for the Biden administration for allegedly carrying this out? Well, this case is still at its very infancy. So the first step is this preliminary injunction. Then there will be a permanent injunction hearing as well as the more uh, full and robust case that I anticipate uh, will be fought uh, very, very heavily by both sides. It could make its way up to the Supreme Court. So we'll have to see if there's any penalty in terms of damages or things like that. But right now we're just at the win for the preliminary injunction stage, which in itself is huge. And you pointed out, Kevin, that the uh, that the judge in this case showed that this was targeted specifically against conservatives. But the judge also pointed out that uh, it, this is a nonpartisan issue and it shouldn't be about party politics because free speech belongs to everyone. And the government, regardless of its own point of view, has absolutely no power because of the First Amendment to censor any American, regardless of their perspective. And you make a good point echoing the Attorney General Jeff Landry of Louisiana, how he's expecting that this will go to the Supreme Court upon an appeal here. How do you think that the Supreme Court is going to rule in this case, given their recent rulings on affirmative action, student loan forgiveness, and also siding with the web designer? Yeah, well, I think that um, especially with the 303 Creative case that just came out last week, that is a really robust free speech case. Um, it does appear that the majority of the justices on the Supreme Court are uh, likely going to uh, uphold freedom of speech for all. And the 303 Creative case was an excellent decision that said that regardless of one's uh, political perspective, uh, that free speech belongs to everyone. So I do anticipate that they will continue on uh, that line of analysis in this case as well. Free speech, of course, is a cornerstone to a functioning democracy. I want to ask you, Jenna, why is there no penalty on the books, or is there already, for a government agency, including with big tech, to do this? 
Well, I think that that's a great question for Congress. And this is something where we can also look at legislative solutions, not just uh, the judiciary in terms of restraining the federal government from uh, this type of collusion and censorship, but we also need to look at not only state level uh, statutes, but also from Congress to make sure that uh, there isn't this overreach from an executive branch or an executive agency that does try to censor Americans based on their political viewpoints or really anything. Uh, the judge mentioned also some of the COVID-19 uh, theories and discussions during the height of the pandemic and uh, and ruled quite rightly that uh, it doesn't matter what Americans believe or what they want to talk about. We should be able to have a free exchange of ideas. We should have freedom of conscience and we should be able to have free and fair debate without being censored by our own government. It definitely seems like there do need to be some laws in action after all this came to light here. Constitutional Attorney Jenna Ellis, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. The Supreme Court reached a decision that could narrow trademark protections. It unanimously ruled that trademark law does not apply to the use of trademarks outside the U.S., but the high court ruled five to four that someone can seek damages in the U.S. for a trademark violation that occurred abroad. That is, if the violation confused U.S. consumers. The case centers on the Lanham Act. That's a law that regulates trademarks and unfair competition in the United States. U.S. laws don't normally apply to actions taking place in other countries. But the specific case raised concerns because the actions outside the U.S. had an impact on U.S. commerce. The court had to decide whether the Lanham Act covers trademark infringements that happen outside the United States. Foreign governments have expressed concerns about U.S. laws applying to activities abroad. Democrats are putting increased pressure on President Biden to pack the Supreme Court with more justices. It comes after high court decisions seen as losses to Democrat policies. The Congressional Progressive Caucus increased efforts to impose term limits on justices and to confirm new justices past the current nine-member limit. Some Democrats have called the court illegitimate after it ended affirmative action, but Biden has so far resisted efforts to pack the court. He brought in a commission to study possible reforms to the court earlier in his term, but the commission recommended against court packing. And still to come, Elon Musk makes a surprising statement on voting rights during an online discussion on the spread of Islam in France. Find out his reasoning. A Twitter competitor app is being released tomorrow. Does Musk's newly acquired platform stand a chance? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Embattled Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton won't be taking the stand at his own Senate impeachment trial. Paxton was impeached by the Texas House of Representatives for alleged bribery and abuse of public trust. Paxton's attorney called the impeachment a baseless attack by political foes. Paxton was investigated by the FBI for years over accusations he used his office to help a donor, real estate developer Nate Paul. In October 2020, a number of top deputies in Paxton's agency told the FBI they believe the attorney general used his office to help Paul. All the whistleblowers were fired or resigned, but the allegations led to a federal investigation. The Department of Justice later took over the investigation, but no federal charges have been filed against Paxton or Paul. 
Paxton's trial in the Texas Senate is scheduled to begin September 5th. He faces 20 articles of impeachment. In an online discussion, Twitter owner Elon Musk stated his support for limiting the right to vote to people who have kids, saying others don't have as much stake in the future. The Twitter discussion was about the spread of Islam in France and was blaming it on the white female vote. Musk has nine living children. He has previously said he is doing his part to fight underpopulation. He gave a warning in April about the low birth rate in responding to a Twitter post about an estimate that Social Security will run out of funds earlier than is expected. He has previously stated that population collapse is a bigger threat to civilization than global warming. Facebook parent Meta plans to release a new Twitter rival app tomorrow called Threads. It will allow users to retain followers from photo-sharing platform Instagram. It's basically Instagram's text-based conversation app. Will Meta's new app pose a threat to Musk's Twitter? NTD Business's Don Ma speaks to a social media expert. And joining me here is Andrew Salapak, social media professor at the University of Florida. So the new meta app, Threads, is expected to be released tomorrow. It's supposed to be a Twitter rival. Do you think it has the potential to be a so-called Twitter killer? I mean, I think a lot of people are overhyping the idea of it being a Twitter killer because we've seen this before with Mastodon, with Blue Sky, with True Social, with Parler. Everything's supposed to be a Twitter killer. Now, the difference is that those companies didn't have the financials that Meta does. So the big reason why this is becoming a bigger conversation is because Meta is obviously a huge company with a ton of money, and they can put a lot of money towards this. But at the end of the day, you're still asking people to kind of make a huge switch, to go from the thing they're comfortable with to something completely new. And with the rare exception of TikTok, that often doesn't happen. So let me ask you this. Instagram has around 2 billion users compared to about 250 million of Twitter. So it's about 10 times bigger already. If, if my math is correct, if one in 10 Instagram users tries threads, it will overtake Twitter. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will use threads. Now, it depends on what they use it for, how often they're using it. You know, a lot of people are on Instagram not because they're trying to necessarily engage in news, conversations, discussions about important topics. That's what Twitter is for. Instagram has been more about a platform where you're sharing photos. And at the same time, it's people that you know. If you think about the the average user on Instagram, they follow accounts of people that they know, whereas the average user on Twitter are following accounts of people they don't know. They're following news organizations, celebrities. They're following politicians. So you're asking people to use it to kind of connect with a different group. At the same time, while Twitter is this platform that's very much a one-to-many, you know, you put out a tweet, it's to the world. Instagram, most people are only putting out messages to people they know. They're putting it out to a select group. They know it's not going to go viral. It's going to get a lot of users, but, you know, at the same time, Google Plus did too, and no one uses that anymore for obvious reasons. And the other question I have is, does it have to be a zero-sum game, right? In order for threads to succeed, does Twitter have to lose? A little bit. And I say that because, you know, if you look at what Facebook and, again, Meta has tried to do over the years is they've never really, they haven't really been innovative in over a decade. When they put out the news feed, that was basically one of the last times they've been innovative. Otherwise, they've either been buying other companies or recreating other companies. And sometimes they're very successful. When they added stories, 
it kind of has killed off Snapchat. But in adding reels, they really didn't do anything to TikTok. So, you know, if we just look at past history, could this be the Snapchat killer or will it be kind of a failure compared to TikTok? I think it will probably fall somewhere in between. People will use it. I think people will try it for a couple days and then kind of go back to the old familiar. We may see kind of a red Twitter and a blue threads where we're kind of dividing up by political allegiance, political alliance. And that's dangerous because now we're even platform wise putting ourselves into kind of echo chambers and filter bubbles. Do you think that's the main attraction of threads, its political orientation? I mean, in your opinion, why would people use threads over Twitter? I, I honestly think that could be where threads is going to be able to potentially succeed, is to pull those people who say, well, Elon Musk and Twitter is now this right-wing platform, I'm not using it anymore, or using the, the platform because they're just upset when they no longer had their blue check mark. And that's really where the, the sort of the danger comes of these platforms separating us politically rather than us being able to engage with others who may have a differing opinion. All right, thank you so much today, Andrew. Pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. All right, and we're continuing with another roller coaster mishap over the weekend, this time at Wisconsin's Forest County Festival theme park. A roller coaster malfunctioned, leaving eight passengers suspended upside down for hours. Local authorities say a mechanical failure caused the ride to become stuck in the upright position. Videos capture the moment rescuers climbed up the side of the ride while passengers anxiously awaited in the middle of the track's loop section. Specialized equipment and additional rescue teams were summoned due to the ride's height. Firefighters from three cities joined forces to help in the rescue mission. Nearly two hours after emergency crews were dispatched, the first passenger was safely brought back to ground. And after three hours, the last passenger was successfully rescued. It was not immediately clear what caused the issue. Authorities said the ride was recently inspected on site by the state of Wisconsin. In other news, a major drug bust in Mexico. The country's Navy seized over two and a half tons of cocaine on Monday. It was seized from three speedboats on the coast of Guerrero, a state in southwest Mexico. Aerial surveillance footage shows people getting off the boats and running towards the mainland. The bust occurred after the Mexican Navy tracked one of the boats for seven hours. The Navy says the crew members fled after becoming aware of the operation against them. The bust follows last week's seizure of over three and a half tons of cocaine from a so-called narco submarine. Turning to Honduras, it's now day two of a 15-day curfew. Authorities are attempting to curb the country's violence. The measure lasts from 9 p.m. local time until 4 a.m., and it's restricted to the northern cities of San Pedro Sula and Choloma. The president made the announcement last Sunday after a shooting in Choloma left at least 11 people dead. Armed men opened fire in a local billiard venue, wounding several others. The president says the curfew could possibly be extended. Thirty Chinese migrants were found at sea by the Colombian army yesterday. They were north of the country, nearing the border with Panama. The Asian migrants were found in a boat by a fast response unit from the army. Authorities then detained three Colombian nationals who were attempting to illegally transport them. On land, the Chinese nationals, including four women, received medical checkups. And just ahead, finally the long wait ended for a city near Chicago to celebrate Independence Day and a huge milestone. 
And what does freedom mean to you? In the run-up to Independence Day, we asked that question to people around the nation. We'll have their responses for you after the break. Evanston, Illinois, a city north of Chicago, has a tradition of celebrating Independence Day with an annual parade. This year marks the 100th anniversary. Here's a closer look at how the community celebrated the holiday from NTD's Angela Moy. Not only is this year's centennial celebration a milestone for Evanston, the Independence Day Parade is the first in four years since the pandemic. Community members are eager to celebrate this holiday together once again. Led by Uncle Sam, 75 diverse organizations paraded in front of an enthusiastic audience with marching bands, talents, and floats. Evanston Mayor Daniel Biss says the celebration brings the community together after a few years of unfortunate events. For a hundred years, it's a cherished, beloved tradition, but especially after two years of a pandemic and the tragedy that occurred last year, it's a really important, special, and poignant opportunity for the whole community to come together to support each other. The Falun Gong group featured an elaborately decorated float, performers in Chinese costumes and banners with the words, truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. Falun Gong of Lundafa is an ancient Chinese meditation practice. Crystal Yang from China celebrates her freedom in the U.S. Since July 20th, 1999, we lost the environment of freedom of belief after Chinese regime leader Jiang Zemin and the Chinese Communist Party began to persecute Falun Gong. Yang appreciates the opportunity to share the practice in the parade. To show the beauty of Falun Dafa to the American people, I'm thrilled. I truly appreciate the American government for the freedom to believe and to pursue a happy life in the land of the free. Onlooker Tom Cardigan is sympathetic to the Chinese people. Be aware and, and, and support them whenever they can, to support the Chinese people. Done in Scottish kilts, the Chicago Highlanders Pipes and Drums group has performed in the parade since 2009. Joe Schreiber hopes to inspire more people to carry on the Scottish music tradition. And if I can enlighten them into Scottish music or bandpipe music, they might come and say, I want to try and learn how to play. So we also get other students in too while we're doing this. Zara Ariano proudly shows off her colorful Mexican costume. America comes from immigrants. We're not just one soul, like one person. We're identified by many people. I'm just trying to show my culture and what it means to be a Mexican-American and just show people a little bit of our culture. Evanston's July 4th celebration also featured fireworks last night and children's games early in the day. Angela Moy, Evanston, Illinois. In the run-up to Independence Day, NTD asked people around the nation to explain what freedom means to them. Here are their responses. The men and women who sacrifice their lives. Freedom is, I think, the option to go for what you dream of. The founding fathers were geniuses. Uh, family gathering is what comes to me. To do things that people can't do in other countries. Being able to speak your mind. Every day I can be free 
be happy, be healthy. Not feeling caged, like doing what you want, but you know, still in a morally way. The freedom's a lot better over here than it is in a lot of other countries, you know? Gives us our independence, we can vote as we please. Freedom means having the ability to walk down the street um, and being safe. I just wanted to come to this country to work for a little bit and I just did it, like nobody stopped me. Able to walk out, not be ridiculed, not be judged. I have to give thanks to our armed forces that keep us safe. Safe, safe, safe. They mean the world. Um, freedom is everything to me. I mean, my parents came to this country because they were looking for freedom. The ability to control your destiny. But every day you're clocking in and you're going in and you're, you're abiding by their agenda. They're keeping you stupid to a level to make sure that you stay in line. Whereas when you go overseas, you see it way differently. My friend who's from China and they have a social credit score and all sorts of stuff. And we were talking about like, I don't know, you can do like whatever you want here and nobody's gonna like revoke your privileges to just be outside. When you can think freely, no matter what other people say to you. Uh, a lot of people who live in this country and don't know any other place complain about how bad America is. Well, if it's so bad, why is everybody fighting to get into it? It's very special. It's very special. You never know what you got till it's gone. You know, a lot of people take it for granted in this country, but, uh, you know, America has a great thing going on. A bit of troubling news. A new Pentagon report says suicide in the military increased in the first three months of this year compared to the same time period last year, marking a 25% rise. There were 94 suicides in the first quarter of 2023. That's the highest number of active duty suicides since 97 were reported in the spring quarter of 2021. Officials note that young enlisted men were found to be the most at risk. The data for this year's report from the Defense Suicide Prevention Office is so far still preliminary. It says the Army saw the greatest increase in suicide deaths year over year, while the Space Force active component has registered no suicide deaths to date. An Army spokesperson told the Military Times that officials are still waiting for a suicide prevention policy, adding they are, quote, working urgently but deliberately to complete this effort. Experts stress that conversations about suicides are seldom had among military members owing to social stigma despite the increased chance of post-traumatic stress disorder because of the nature of their work. This 4th of July, swimmers at Navarre Beach in Florida's Panhandle were in for a surprise. An alert beachgoer spotted a shark swimming off the coast. Phone video shows the telltale fin and outline of the shark as some swimmers took notice and headed for the safety of the beach while others remained in the surf. The shark appeared again briefly on the video and then appeared to move on. A rash of shark attacks have been reported this summer, but nothing more than average. According to the website tracking sharks, through early June, at least 16 such attacks were reported in the U.S., nine of them in Florida. None were fatal. July 4th is a great time for a barbecue with friends, but July 5th is the day for a luau. It's National Hawaii Day. Today is the time to celebrate our 50th state. NationalDayCalendar.com honors each state in order in which they enter the union. Hawaii is America's 50th state and officially achieved statehood on August 21, 1959. 
The Aloha State is honored every year on July 5th. Hawaii was a key location for U.S. military and strategic interests well before becoming a state. The Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor was the event that pulled America into World War II. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, what would Sweden bring to NATO and what has Finland already bought? Brought, find out what they bring to the alliance and how they could help Ukraine. In Afghanistan, the Taliban leadership orders all beauty salons to close. Find out what it means for women in the nation right here on NTD News. Welcome back. As the nation celebrates its independence, we hear a perspective from a communism survivor about what makes America so important. Take a look. Please welcome Lily Tong Williams, who is a survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution and a candidate for the United States House of Representatives from New Hampshire. Lily, it's great to speak with you today. Well, thank you for having me back. And as we are in the midst of the birthday week for the United States, you yourself fled communism. How has the United States helped you shatter your communist chains, as you put it? Well, I have been telling people about my stories. It is a founding father's document. The Declaration of Independence brought me to this country when I first was exposed to it by an American exchange student when I was third year in college. You know, the individual rights concept just, uh, you know, turn on my light bulbs. And of course, all men are created equal. Our rights come from our creator, from God, not from any government. That's just like the first time I ever heard of it. It just really resonated with me. So after that, I think I'm totally changed, and you know, mindset. <laughs> That is really great. I'm really glad that you've experienced that here in the United States. What can you tell us about the Constitution in China and whether or not it's being followed? No, of course not. I mean, they had all the rights listed, but it's just in piece of paper. They don't stick to it. And we have a one-party dictatorship, and they can change the Constitution to fit their needs. And like, like the presidential uh, Xi Jinping's term limit was eliminated. And now he can be the China's leader forever. And of course, we've seen in China horrible human rights abuses. And even back in October 2020, U.S. lawmakers called what the CCP was doing to the Uyghurs genocide. So yet another way that the United States is standing up for freedoms there. What does the United States mean to you and to victims of authoritarian regimes around the world? Well, I see the U.S. is the unshining city on the hill. And the we cannot lose America because, uh, you know, the world will be a very dark place. Everybody look at the United States as a leader of the free world, and they have to stand up firm to protect human rights and to call out authoritarian regimes that are abusing human rights. So I'm hoping that uh, the Biden administration will come out and strongly to call out the CCP's cultural genocide. And I just saw recently they are still, you know, jailing, arresting the Hong Kong protesters, even, you know, overseas. So I think that we need to put that on the negotiation table to say, you know why, if we want to deal with you, then please think about, you need to release those political prisoners at once. 
And of course, the United States has been very active in calling out the human rights abuses in China. And as we look back in history, the United States helped Europe by rebuilding its economy in order to prevent the spread of communism there. So another reason why the United States promotes freedom. In your view, why is the U.S. worth defending? Well, the U.S. is a leader of the free world, and it stands for individual rights and liberty, like founding fathers and talked about in the Declaration of Independence. And uh, you, that's why I choose to come to this country. I did not go to European countries. And so the America is absolutely worth to defending for. And uh, I'm fighting for America because, uh, you know, I really feel like uh, I have no place to go. Where should I call home? after we, you know, um, feel in this country. And I believe American people are very strong. They have this culture of individual rights and liberty and rule of law. And that's my American dream, too. So that if we all wake up now and stop this, you know, uh, actually CCP's infiltration into this country and also continue to go back to roots of basic values that the founding fathers outline and, and give to us, I think that uh, we still can take the leadership in the world and fight the communism and socialism. Lily, I do really appreciate hearing your insight on this. Lily Tong Williams, survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen departed for Beijing today for meetings with senior Chinese officials. A broad range of issues are on the agenda, including U.S. concerns about a new Chinese counter-espionage law. Yellen's trip is part of a push by President Biden to deepen communications between Washington and Beijing. It comes just weeks after Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Beijing. Yellen plans to tell China's new economic team that Washington will continue to defend human rights as well as its own national security interests. That would be done via targeted actions against China, but the senior official wants to work with Beijing on issues like climate and debt. A river running through Ikoma City in western Japan turned bright green this morning concerning local residents. Video posted on social media shows the Tatsuta River turned a lime green color. It was posted by a local resident who was alarmed by the site while walking her dog. Local media reports say various concerns about the color have been raised by locals in the neighborhood. Public broadcaster NHK says there are no irritating smells despite the abnormal color, and local officials found the water to be non-toxic after conducting a sample test. The Acoma City Hall said the cause of the colored water is still being investigated and asked farmers not to use it for agricultural purposes until the water's safety can be confirmed. As Sweden faces challenges in its NATO membership bid, President Biden hosts Sweden's prime minister at the White House. Sweden has wanted to join NATO ever since Russia invaded Ukraine. But NATO member nations have to agree on new membership. Hungary and Turkey have opposed Sweden's application. The Turkish government accuses Sweden of being overly accommodating towards certain groups, including militant Kurdish groups and people linked to a 2016 coup attempt in Turkey. Hungary's parliament recently decided to put off ratifying Sweden's bid until its autumn legislative session. Sweden's prime minister last month expressed his country's desire to join NATO before or during a July NATO summit in Lithuania. Both Sweden and Finland resisted joining NATO for decades, opting for neutrality and non-alignment. Finland was admitted in April, 
Aside from Sweden, three more countries, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia and Ukraine, have stated their aspirations to join NATO. What do Finland and potentially Sweden bring to NATO? Analysts say the alliance is vulnerable in northwest Europe, near the border with Russia. If Sweden joins NATO, it's going to help the military alliance address its vulnerabilities in northern Europe. This is one of the key reasons why. The country's world-leading submarine fleet, which has some traits that both Russia and the U.S. Navy are lacking. Reuters has been granted rare access to Sweden's subfleet, which experts say could be a game-changer for NATO. And with neighboring Finland having joined in April, we'll take a look at how this expanded alliance may reshape Europe's security map. The first issue, Sweden and the Baltic Sea itself. The waterway is shared with Russia, and it's a strategically important one, with access to ports in eight countries, including Germany. It's also where vital undersea infrastructure runs, including the incident in 2022 where one of the Nord Stream gas pipelines was destroyed. Captain Frederick Linden is the commander of Sweden's first submarine flotilla, and this is his sub, HMS Gotland. The Baltic Sea is a very, as I said, it's a multidimensional area. Uh, it also can be easily described with, with the, what we call the five seas, confined, confused, contested, congested, and, and, and cluttered. Uh, it's a very busy area. A lot of areas where, where, where we can hinder the, 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 the opponent to, to, to move about on their own free will. So, so I would say that uh, with fire submarines, you can easily constrain the movements to, of, 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 your, of, of your opponent. Additionally, the Baltic has an average depth of only about 100 feet, which is too shallow for the nuclear subs of the U.S. Navy and most of Russia's fleet to operate effectively in. That's where Sweden's fleet comes in. Gotland-class subs are among the most advanced non-nuclear subs in the West. They run on diesel, but can stay submerged for significantly longer than most other conventional models and reduce the risk of detection. Further down the line, Sweden's building even more advanced subs, dubbed the A-26. Two are expected to be delivered in four or five years. What about Finland? When it joined NATO, it brought the alliance a massive new northern border with Russia and the infrastructure, such as roads and railways, to move troops around that territory. In May, Finland hosted its first Arctic military exercises as a NATO member. This is Major General Gregory Anderson of the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division. I can tell you as a military professional, the ability to move equipment and soldiers and ammunition and supplies in a rapid, organized way, an efficient way is really important. It gives you lots of options uh, into how you employ your forces. So any infrastructure that can enable the rapid movement of forces, uh, whether it be ports, airfields, railways, highways, all this stuff is significant to warfare. The timing is a challenge for NATO. According to a think tank in Helsinki, the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, Western armed forces are about 10 years behind Russia in the Arctic, which has been steadily building up and fortifying its presence there. The think tank also says that even taking into account Russia's losses in Ukraine, its northern fleet and bombers are intact. 
Finland's investing about $163 million upgrading the home base of its Arctic Air Force for it to host half the country's new fleet of F-35 fighter jets. Russia's defense ministry did not respond to a request for comment. Afghanistan's Taliban leaders have ordered beauty salons in the country to close within a month, marking another blow to Afghan women since the regime seized power nearly two years ago. Residents were informed of the decision on July 2nd. An Afghan woman reacting to the notice told the BBC that all the salons in her area had already closed. Another Afghan woman said the Taliban's latest decree is to eliminate women at every level of public life and prevent women from serving other women. The Taliban-led ministry has not given any reason for the ban or said if there would be any alternatives for women once the salons close. The announcement comes as foreign governments in the United Nations have denounced growing restrictions on women since the Taliban seized power in 2021. Western governments and international organizations have signaled that restrictions on women are hampering any possible progress toward international recognition for the Taliban. The regime, however, insists that it respects women's rights in accordance with its interpretation of Islamic law and Afghan customs. Coming up, a 3D replica of the moon delights onlookers in Chile. The artwork is part of an ongoing global exhibition. So what makes playing on grass tennis courts like those at Wimbledon so unique yet so challenging? Get the full story after this break. Good to have you back with us. A 3D replica of the moon is on display in Chile. The exhibition, known as Museum of the Moon, is attracting crowds of astronomy enthusiasts. Visitors can lie down and contemplate the moon or walk around the fine-grained sculpture. It's about 23 feet in diameter, a ratio of 1 to 500,000 to the real satellite. The artwork was made by a British artist. It toured cities like Toronto, Milan, and Dubai before arriving in the Chilean capital. The exhibition will run through July 27th, just in time for the full moon known as the Buck Moon. New artifacts are uncovered at an ancient Mayan settlement. They shed new light on the Mayan civilization and its possible links to other cultural groups. Deep in the jungles of northern Guatemala lies an archaeological site dating back to the first millennium B.C., There, archaeologists unearthed ceramic plaques showing links between the Mayans and another early civilization in Central America, the Olmecs. These artifacts offer a glimpse of life about 500 years before the classical peak of Maya civilization. At that time, this settlement may have been an important metropolis during its day. Wimbledon is the only grass court Grand Slam and retains a glamour born from crisp white clothes and impeccable green courts. But what makes this playing surface stand out beyond the aesthetics? I do believe I'm one of the best grass court players in the world. Getting used to the grass was always a, um, a tricky part. The ATP tennis tour consists of tournaments on grass, clay and hard courts. Wimbledon is the only grass court Grand Slam competition. So what makes a grass court different to others? Grass courts are recognized as the fastest of the three main tennis surfaces. 
The ball skids off the slick grass as it makes contact, giving it a lower bounce and retaining more speed. Clay has a looser surface, creating more friction, which causes a higher bounce, effectively slowing the ball down. Hard courts are in the middle of the two, giving a more neutral bounce and average speed. These surfaces cause different types of play to emerge over the years. For clay courts, patient, defensive play from the back of the court or baseline achieves success. While the aggressive serve and volley technique dominated at Wimbledon for many decades. It makes the most of the grass's unique quality, its speed. Grass courts favour fast servers that send balls rocketing off the grass and are very challenging to return well, if they are returned at all. At the other end, the opponent waits. They are positioned to respond quickly before the ball can bounce and angle the ball away. But over time, players evolved to play more defensive on grass, remaining at the baseline in longer rallies. This is due to the use of lighter, stiffer rackets used after 1980 that had bigger heads and better strings. Because of this, the back edge of the court receives the most traffic and becomes barren. By the end of the tournament, the baseline traffic patterns are evident. So how are Wimbledon's courts managed? Grown from 10 metric tonnes of seed each year, renovations for Wimbledon's grass courts begin the previous September. As June nears, the grass is mowed to an exact quarter inch high, which Wimbledon says is the ideal for both play and its survival. In comparison, the lawn of an average home is between two and three inches, while the putting green on a golf course is an eighth of an inch. A crew of 31 ground staff nurture the vegetation each day, but the intense play leaves its mark, leaving parts of the court barren. The lines are reapplied each morning. Before the grass season starts, the final tournament's played is the pinnacle of clay court tennis, the French Open. The two tournaments traditionally require vastly different styles of play, due to their surfaces being at opposite ends of the court speed spectrum. This makes winning both of them in the same year a particular challenge for any player. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.